0: Well, you know, we can never tell the whole story. That is not in our power to do. But we can tell parts of the story. And so that has its own value and is a worthy thing for us to do. So I'll tell you a couple parts of the story. Martin Luther King was 26 years old when the Montgomery bus boycott began. He had been in his church, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, for a year just out of seminary. It's a pretty little church. In a way, it reminds me, actually, of our church on Hamilton, especially the basement. Seems very similar to the basement we had over there. A woman named Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat on the bus in accordance with the segregation laws that were in Montgomery, but all over the South. She was not the first woman to get arrested for this. There had been two others before her who had refused to give up their seats. But the leaders of the community decided not to uh, start a boycott in those two cases because they were worried that there were some aspects of those two women that could be used against them. And so all the attention would be diverted onto somehow blaming them and saying they were somehow faulty human beings. But in the case of Rosa Parks, there was nothing. She was an upstanding member of the community. She was well-known. She had never been in any kind of legal difficulty of any sort, and she wanted to do it. She wanted to take that place in history and so they brought together a group of leaders and they formed uh, an organization and they needed a president and this young man Martin Luther King nobody realized that that was Martin Luther King they just thought it was a guy named Martin Luther King and so they had to elect a president a president and somebody nominated Martin Luther King and King says later on he said if I had had a few minutes to think about that I would have said no but before he could kind of gather his thoughts they had already elected him and so he was the first president of the Montgomery Improvement Association which is what they called it. They decided to have a boycott and they they decided to do it for one day to see if it would work ask all the African-Americans not to get on the buses. So they tried to do it for one day, really hoping that at least maybe 50 or 60% of the people would not ride the bus and the bus companies would feel it. It turned out to be 90% on the first day. So they decided, well, let's try it for a few more days. And the boycott held, and people did not get on the buses. It stayed at that 90% level. And so they continued for another week and then they had to have an alternate transportation system. So they arranged a transportation system amongst the community and it was basically carpooling. Everybody who had a car would join in the alternate system and they would have pick up places and drop off places. And they had the whole, I mean, they, and they organized this in the church basement. All right, who's going to pick up people over by this church and who's going to take them to this school? And they arranged the whole thing. So they had, they had a, a system where everybody could get to work or get to school or wherever it is that they had to be. And some of the white families in Montgomery came over and picked up the people who worked for them too. That was part of the system. That Some of those families participated in creating transportation for their employees. The bus company would not budge. They were not, they were not changing anything. And there were negotiations, but there was no progress in the negotiations, and but, the, but the community decided to keep going they decided they weren't going to give up the boycott. And they continued to have meetings and discuss it, and they continued to affirm that we're going to do this. We're not not going back. At the King household, uh, death threats became common. The phone would ring. There would be someone on the other line who would threaten them maybe with shooting or bombing or lynching them and tell them they had to get out of town. The language is often vulgar and profane, threatening language, and it just became a commonplace. Some callers would tell them to get out of town because their whole family was going to be lynched. Now, through all of this, King preached nonviolence. He had been converted to nonviolence in his studies, Although he was, not, he was 26 years old. He was 26 years old. So he had studied this stuff and he intellectually believed in it. But in a way that he was finding out whether nonviolence were, would work. And I'll tell you an interesting little fact is that at one point he bought a gun. Because he was afraid for his family. And then some of the other people in the community convinced him that he couldn't keep that gun. Because... It just didn't fit in with the integrity of the movement, and so he got rid of it. But for a brief period of time, he had a gun. He, he was worried. He was worried. But he preached nonviolence, and they practiced nonviolence, and they would have training sessions in the churches. They would have training sessions where somebody would come up and sit on the stage, and then someone else would taunt them and call them names, and really lay it on, lay it on thick. And they would see how they would react to that. You know, and they would learn how to be nonviolent, even in the face of a lot of provocation. Because if you're trying to be nonviolent and you get provoked all the time and you respond, then you, you lost that. You, you're in trouble now. You're in a violent world, which King felt would lead nowhere, If it became violent, it would lead nowhere. The only hope was to keep taking abuse, but just stay in one's own integrity and not not go on to the level of the oppressor. And King believed, of course, that if the people could do that, then people of good conscience would observe that and their hearts would be changed. That's, that's the theory of nonviolence. It's that The people of good conscience will be changed by observing what's happening in these nonviolent demonstrations. And that in fact did happen. And The whole United States got to see this stuff on TV the longer the civil rights movement went on. And they did change their minds. King had doubts about what he was... It's very clear that he had doubts. He thought... I, maybe we, don't, we need to end this. Somebody is going to get terribly hurt. He had moments of despair where it, he did not know if he was doing the right thing. And he talks about these moments of despair. One night in his kitchen... You, by the way, if you go to Montgomery, you can sit in, in the kitchen at the kitchen table if you want to. So one night in the kitchen, he got up in the middle of the night and had a cup of coffee, and he said he was in despair and thinking of disbanding the movement. And what he says is that he felt a loving presence. King was a Christian. There was no, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. He said he felt a loving presence in the room, saying to him that he should continue. And so he said that removed the despair at that time, and made him feel like he was doing the right thing. Just a couple of nights after that time, the bomb did arrive. Somebody threw a bomb onto the porch of their house in Montgomery, and the bomb exploded on the porch. And by great good fortune... No one was hurt. No one was close enough to that part of the house to be hurt by the bomb. King was delivering an address somewhere in town and they called him immediately and said, Come home, your house has been bombed. And he he came home and when he got to his house, there was an angry crowd out in front of the house. They were just they were they were the community people who had been marching and been nonviolent but they were just furious. And this was the moment when it really could have cracked. And King stood on the porch and he told them we're all fine. Nobody's been injured. And we need to just keep our calm. And not respond in like manner. Let's just all take a deep breath. Let's remember that we're committed to the way of nonviolence. And they went home. That was a moment when things could have gone a different way. The city king was arrested several times during this process, by the way. He was arrested once for speeding... He said he was driving down the street and he saw the cop car behind him. I think it was like a 30-mile-an-hour zone or something like that. He said he slowed down to 25, but he was busted for speeding and sent to jail. And then later during the bus boycott, he was arrested for conspiracy. Uh, I don't know exactly what the conspiracy was, but that was the charge, and he stayed in jail... For, for a period of time there because he wasn't willing to pay the bail and then somebody eventually bailed him out. Towards the end of the bus boycott, the city passed a resolution making it illegal to have any form of alternate transportation system in the city. I'm sure they were looking out for the public good, weren't they? We don't want any fly-by-night operations. So they passed a law saying you couldn't have an alternative, and the movement really was in despair. And the wonderful thing is that several lawsuits had been filed uh, challenging segregation on the buses, and right about at that time, when they were really stretched out thin and didn't know what to do, the Supreme Court made a ruling now, it was the first of a number of legal statements, but essentially the Supreme Court said that the segregation of the buses was unconstitutional. And, but it didn't totally clear the air, but it was a tremendous, a tremendous victory. And eventually, there were other legal events that happened, but soon after that, uh, the bus company said it would resolve, it would uh, reform its policy, and eventually the community called off the bus boycott with the bus company saying that they would change. On the first day that the company implemented the new policy, Martin Luther King himself boarded the bus outside his house at seven o'clock in the morning and the door opened, King stepped up into the bus and the driver said, are you the Reverend Martin Luther King? And King responded that, yes, he was. And the driver replied, we are glad to have you this morning. So there's a moment. But even after the bus boycott was resolved, there were still acts of violence. There were still people who got hurt. And that that carried on for a while because, you know, people were angry in various ways. And some people didn't want to accept the change. But they had won. They did it. The boycott went on over a year. And it was uh, settled on December twenty-first, 1956, I believe, on the solstice. Uh, That was about a year and two weeks of not riding the buses. Once the boycott was successful, King could not just go back to his relatively small church and be the Sunday preacher, although he cared about them, but he was, he had, his life had changed. He was being called from all over the United States and even all over the world to come and speak and talk about how they did this and talk about nonviolence and, and tell the story. And he became uh, a public figure at that point, called on by everyone to help lead the people out of the Jim Crow era, into an era of equality. And you know many of the stories, which we can't tell today. He made a trip to India to study nonviolence. He worked all over the South, including in Birmingham, where he got arrested and wrote a famous piece of American literature called The Letter from Birmingham Jail, where he writes a response to the white ministers who called upon him to quit doing this Because it was leading to trouble. And he wrote back and essentially said, why aren't you with me? You know that the Selma March occurred in which our minister, Fred LeShane, took part. Also a minister took part who was going to become one of our ministers later, James Wilkes. Also another minister took part uh, named Paul Hennigus who was not ever minister of this church, but was a member of this church. Those three of our clergy were in the Selma March. You know about the tremendous demonstration in Washington and the I Have a Dream speech. Eventually, there were two major pieces of legislation passed the Civil Rights Bill and a Voting Rights Bill. Because in the South, there was all kinds of shenanigans about voting. And if you haven't seen... The movie Selma, go see that movie because the character played by Oprah goes in and tries to vote. And it's a great scene. Just go see that scene and you'll get it. It, uh, One book said they would ask them, what's the capital of Madagascar? How many of you know the answer to that? All right, one person in this room. Uh, He was recognized by a Nobel Prize Dr. King, in his later years, if you can call your 30s your later years, became an anti-war activist, and he also became a leader in the fight for economic justice, and at the time of his assassination, he was in Memphis, where he was supporting the garbage workers' strike. He was 39 years old, struck down by an assassin's bullet His career was from age 26 to age 39. 13 years. So we cannot possibly say everything that deserves to be said about those years and what he brought into birth. Martin Luther King is now a legend. He's greater than life. He's a symbol. He is a significant historic figure not just in America, but all over the world. So now here we are in 2016, more than 50 years since his death. So I don't know how we can resist the question of how his vision is faring after half a century since he proclaimed it and apparently won major victories. How is the vision faring? Michelle Alexander, who wrote a brilliant book called The New Jim Crow, I know some of you have read it, argues that in American history, every significant step towards equality has had a backlash follow it. That's one of her central arguments, is that that's the way American history has worked. Dr. King successfully moved the nation past the entrenched Jim Crow laws, meaning all the discriminatory laws that were complex and vast and many of them just blatantly discriminatory. But according to her, a new Jim Crow came after that. A period of mass incarceration began in the 80s, fueled by law and order rhetoric by politicians by the way, what she argues is that you, after Martin Luther King, you couldn't use racial language anymore. That would not, you just couldn't do that. But you could use other words that would mean racial matters, but you couldn't use the racial word. This is a whole history of politics thing in the United States. So you, you couldn't say black people, but you could say urban crime. So that's how you do that. You just find another word that doesn't refer to anything racial and you use that word. So law and order was one of those too. So on this wave of law and order in the 1980s, we got new drug laws which were unequally enforced. And you know what? If you don't think that's true, then let's just go over to Panera's and get a couple of lattes and let me show you some of the data. I don't think a reasonable person can come to any other conclusion after looking at the data that the laws were unequally enforced and there was a major discovery by some people that building prisons could be a very lucrative business. And in the next 30 years the prison population went from 300,000, 300,000 to over 2 million. From 300,000 to over 2 million, making us the most incarcerated people on the planet, mostly filled with minorities. And after all that, the war on drugs essentially had no success whatsoever. And in 2008, looking back, an African American was elected president of the United States. Surely this was the long-awaited breakthrough. This was going to be the moment when the dream was realized, when an African American could occupy the highest office in the land and be our leader. And yet, to many observers, the African American community has not done well during the Obama years. This is an observation made by many smart people. The economy rebounded from a near-death experience, but almost none of the new wealth went to middle and lower classes, black or brown or white. Cornell West, who is an African-American Harvard professor and an activist, a real activist, you may have seen him on TV or somewhere, and is a sharp critic of Obama, claims that the black prophetic voice which King embodied has been largely silenced during the Obama years. And why should that be? Why wouldn't it be just the opposite, that that voice would really be strong, you know, and come forward? And Cornel West says, well, we have a black president, and to criticize the government, then, is in some way to criticize our African-American president. And the African-American community has not wanted to do that. So in a sense, they've laid off the criticism of the government. And so he says that 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 black prophetic voice has really been weakened paradoxically during the Obama years. We also know that during the Obama years, a highly organized and I would say mean-spirited political backlash that would really go with Michelle Alexander's theory, right, The giant leap forward produces a big backlash, was implemented with the goal to really oppose everything Obama put forward, even if he wanted to pass a resolution saying we're grateful that the sun came up this morning. So that it would be opposed. I'll meet you at Panera's. (laughs) Or someplace else if you want, I don't care. So the Obama years have been bleak in a way politically for the cause of equality, strangely enough. And that cause has not flourished but in some ways has diminished. In some ways we are now retrograde on the cause of equality. The gutting of the voting rights bill by the Supreme Court, a major provision of that bill, a bill for which King and his followers risked their lives and was considered in a way, the crowning achievement of the civil rights movement is a deeply felt loss. And by the way, when that bill was, that provision was gutted by the Supreme Court, states all over the place, just, they had the laws already written and ready to be voted on. Some of them voted on those laws that day to make it more difficult to vote. They were ready to go. As for Dr. King, Cornell West says that he has undergone what he calls a process of Santa Clausification. Santa Clausification is Cornell West's phrase. He has become a kindly, smiling, mythical hero who brought peace and justice to all the boys and girls and led his people to freedom which is complete. And so we have a happy celebration each year and sing songs and read his most famous speeches. This is a harsh critique of this, the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. In this way, he argues that the full force of King's prophetic vision does not necessarily come through in these annual rituals. The Civil Rights Movement was not a mythical tale where the good guys won. It was a long, hard struggle where four little girls were killed by a bomb in their own church, where a Unitarian Universalist minister named James Reeb was clubbed to death outside a restaurant in Selma, Alabama, where the mythical leader was assassinated, and where one of the most hard-fought victories of the Civil Rights Movement was reversed by the courts 50 years later. And the prisons, although there is some progress, are still filled with mostly minorities in numbers too large to almost even imagine. So it's hard to face these facts. I'm sorry, I'm going to come up with some happy stuff here in a minute. (laughs) These are tough facts. These are tough facts. King said at one point that democracy and freedom are a promissory note that the United States has written but has not fulfilled the promise. So, we are not basking in the glow of Dr. King's dream. Not yet. How long will it be? Not long, said Dr. King. I want to suggest this morning that this civil rights struggle is our struggle. It belongs to us, it belongs to us through our human nature our sense of compassion. It belongs to us through the tradition that we come from in this religious path. It belongs to us because it's just right. I don't know how discrimination can be justified in any situation. Our church mission says embracing freedom. So that's where we want to be. We want to be embracing the struggle for freedom and justice. That's, That's the place to be. This is the march we all need to join. We may not join it all in exactly the same way, but we all need to be on that march. That needs to be part of who we are. There are four areas of justice we can focus our attention and energy on right now. The struggle for voting rights has not been won. I can't think of any more precious right worth working for. Voting rights in our country is in retrograde right now from where it was after the victory of civil rights. We need to get on board for voting rights. The mass incarceration fiasco in our country is a disaster in need of mass healing. We need to be the number one country in the world for justice. Wouldn't that be it? That's what we're... The dream says we're going to be the place where everyone gets justice. That's that's the right goal. We We need to get on board for justice. Our police officers need to be our heroes. We need to look to them for fairness, for good judgment for protection when we need it. We need to drastically reduce the violence and often inequality of how suspects are treated in this country. It's that, that is... Boy, I come from Chicago. Chicago is just stirring right now because a group of police officers... One officer killed somebody with no justification and it was caught on camera but before the film was shown a whole lot of people lied about it. A whole bunch of people lied about it. And now that police department is in turmoil and that's going to be part of the process. We need to get on board about how Policing is done in our country. We need to get back to them being the heroes. That's what we want. The, the truly good guys. We are living in the richest country in the world, but the wealth that is gained in this world stays right on the top of the socioeconomic chart. Almost all of it, really. You can look, you, as Yogi Berra used to say, you can look it up. You can look that up in the book and you can see that that's what's happening. We need to be enormously better than that. We need to make sure that everyone has food and shelter and health care and good schools and safe streets. And this became Dr. King's uh, vision at the end of his life. Economic justice for everyone. There is absolutely no reason why we couldn't do that, and you know what? The rich people would still be rich. They would, they'd still be rich, they'd still have all kinds of stuff. But everyone would have the means to a good life. It is time to get on board for economic justice. everywhere. Even King's promised land will not be perfect. There will always be a struggle. But we can do so much better as a people than we are doing today. Dr. King can no longer do this work for us. We can't say he's the champion. Praise Dr. Doc- he is the champion, but it belongs to us. If it's going to happen, it belongs to us. We can praise him, but that won't bring justice to our land. Just telling the story won't do it. We have to pick up the banner, every one of us. We have to commit ourselves to the deep worth and dignity of every person. We have to truly believe that black lives matter. It's not that other people's lives don't matter, they do. But we have to focus where the problem is. And we have to commit ourselves to our own principles of justice and equity and compassion in our world. This is where we need to be. That's the way it looks from my point of view. We, in some way, every one of us, and as a community, we need to be on the march. That's the place for us to be. Because the dream is truly the life worth living. So be it.